0: In the spring of 2020, Veronica and her five young daughters were forced to flee their hometown in Mexico when violence erupted at the hands of local gangs. They made their way north to the U.S.-Mexico border, hoping to seek asylum in the United States. At the time, several U.S. border policies prevented them from entering the U.S. as a family to make their claim for asylum. As a result, they, like thousands of other families fleeing persecution, were forced to wait in a Mexican border town indefinitely in horribly dangerous conditions. As the living conditions at the border became more threatening and with no timeline of when the waiting might end, Veronica feared for the lives of her daughters who were all under the age of 12. Because unaccompanied minors were exempt from the border policy that had forced the family to remain in Mexico, Veronica made the agonizing decision to send her children across the border alone in an attempt to save their lives. Once the children crossed the border into the United States, they were placed into the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Without any family members to receive them out of detention, the girls remained in government custody for over a year while Veronica was prohibited from entering the U.S. to seek safety herself. Finally, Veronica managed to enter the country in the spring of 2021. Although she did her best to jump through all of the government's hoops, the Office of Refugee Resettlement refused to release her daughters to her. She eventually found Vecina's reunite project and with the help of her pro bono legal team, Veronica was finally reunited with her children roughly 18 months after the girls entered the U.S.
1: I'm Lindsay Goldford-Gray, and this is Inadmissible. Today, we're joined on the podcast by someone really special, Vecina's own project director, Molly Chu. Molly directs all of Vecina's projects, but specializes in our Reunite project, where we work to assist family members and loved ones of detained, unaccompanied immigrant children in the reunification process. Prior to coming on board with Vecina, Molly Chu spent nearly seven years working with unaccompanied refugee children and their families in an array of Office of Refugee Resettlement, otherwise known as ORR, contracted programs. This included ORR shelters, foster care, and home study and post-release services. She previously worked as the Western Regional Supervisor for a program that made reunification recommendations for detained unaccompanied minors and connected these children and their families with community resources upon reunification. Molly is an accredited representative accredited by the Department of Justice and is obtaining her master's degree in refugee protections and forced migration studies from the University of London. Molly's here to talk to us about a topic that has repeatedly been in the news and is near and dear to her heart, the experiences of unaccompanied immigrant children who are detained in the United States. Molly, thanks for being here. Thanks, Lindsay, it's great to be here. So I want to start at the beginning which I think starts with the question of why. Why are children migrating to the United States?
2: So what we know about unaccompanied minors is that the vast majority of them are coming from a region known as the Northern Triangle, which consists of Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador. We know that roughly 30 to 40% of these children are indigenous um, and they are coming here for a variety of reasons. When we talk about this, there are push factors that are driving children out of their countries of origin, and then there are pull factors that are sort of drawing these children to the United States, and usually their reasons for migrating are a combination of the two. So some of these push factors uh, in their countries of origin include gang and cartel violence, domestic violence, discrimination especially for indigenous populations, climate crises, poverty, family instability, um, some of the pull factors that are drawing children to the United States are that many of them have family members here in the U.S. Oftentimes, there are better educa- ed- educational and economic opportunities here in the U.S. and more stability and safety than they might have had in their of origin.
1: When we think of an unaccompanied child, we would generally think of what that means, you know, in our everyday lives, which means a child that's alone but there's a legal definition of unaccompanied child. What is that?
2: So the definition of an unaccompanied child is sort of threefold. Um, The child has to have no lawful immigration status in the U.S., they have to be under the age of 18 and they have to have no parent or legal guardian in the U.S. or no parent or legal guardian in the U.S. available to provide care and physical custody.
1: So let's talk about how that plays out in practice, because we know that, what is it, 40 to 50 percent of kids come to the U.S. and they actually have a parent that is in the U.S. and ready to receive them. So what happens to those kids?
2: Yeah. So what's really challenging is that this definition that states that an unaccompanied child does not have a parent or legal guardian in the U.S., Um, doesn't get applied that way when children are apprehended at the southern border. So how this plays out in practice is that if the child does not have legal status and is under the age of 18 and they don't have a parent or legal guardian physically with them when they are apprehended and they cross the border, they're deemed unaccompanied. So, you know, while 50 percent roughly of them do have a parent or legal guardian here in the U.S., they may not be physically pregnant with them when they cross the border, and so they are deemed unaccompanied.
1: So so kids that, by legal definition, are not unaccompanied are being designated as such. So, you know, sort of very briefly, because I know we could talk about this all day, what effect does that have on the children, and what effect does it have on our taxpayer dollars?
2: Yeah, so this has really devastating effects on both. Um what it means in practice is that we're separating, we're placing kids into custody and detaining them um, when we don't need to. You know, there are ways that we could have their parents or legal guardians um, uh, retrieve them at the southern border and without putting them into detention. Um what it also means is that we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars every year to detain kids who don't need to be detained. Um What this also means is that children who have crossed the border with any family member uh, other than their biological parent or legal guardian, um, they'll be separated from this person when they cross and they'll be deemed unaccompanied and placed into government custody. Uh, We see this happen all the time with children who maybe have been raised by a different family member their entire life, um, a grandparent, a cousin, an aunt, uncle, brother, sister, Uh, If they cross with any of these family members and their parent or legal guardian is not with them, they will separate the child from their family and place them into government custody.
1: So we're detaining kids when they have a parent in the U.S. and thus are not actually unaccompanied children under the definition. We're separating children from non-parental caregivers, maybe someone that has taken care of them their whole life. And then let's also talk about one other aspect of this, because we we all remember family separation, right, Where, where the government was literally ripping children from their parents' arms. But there have been border policies since then that have given rise to family separation maybe in a different way. Can you talk about that?
2: Definitely. So in the last couple of years, the last three to four years, um, there have been a number of border policies that have caused there to be more children deemed unaccompanied and more children detained in the US. Uh, these policies are Title 42, which I know has been covered previously on this podcast, um, and the Migrant Protection Protocols or MPP, informally known as Remain in Mexico. So both of these border policies have forced thousands of families to wait in Mexico indefinitely and have prevented these families from seeking asylum in the United States. So what has happened is that so many of these families in Mexican border cities have been subjected to violence, kidnapping, extortion, very, very dangerous conditions. And so oftentimes uh, the parents or the adult caregivers of these children who are with them uh, make the really agonizing decision uh, to send their children across the border alone um, in attempts to save their children's lives so that they're not subjected to the violence at the border. Uh, and the reason that they do that is because unaccompanied minors have been exempt from these policies, whereas adults and family units have not. Um, so what has happened is that, you know, children are being sent alone. Um, they weren't ever unaccompanied, but because they're adult- family members aren't permitted to enter the country to seek asylum. The children are unaccompanied when they cross.
1: So the parents are forced to decide between remaining as a family, but being in Mexico where they're at risk of many different types of danger or sending the kids across alone because if they cross together, they would just be turned back. Is that right?
2: Certainly. And that happens with parents and non-parental caregivers. We see this all the time where they're just, they're forced to make this decision. And if that sounds atrocious, it's because it is.
1: I want to turn now to the process. So when a child comes to the border without a parent or legal guardian physically with them, what happens to that child?
2: So when the child is initially crosses the border and is apprehended, they're apprehended by custom, Customs and Border Protection or CBP. Um, and they're temporarily placed into CBP custody in facilities that are known as hileras. Um, hileras translates most closely to ice box. Um, and that's because these facilities are known to be very cold. Anyone who's ever worked with these children um will hear horror stories about their time in detention and um, and I think you know many of us have seen this play out in the news. Um, you know, when we think back a couple of years to when child migration was so prominent in the news, oftentimes we would hear about kids in cages, and we would see these images of children who were packed into these really confined facilities, um, sleeping on concrete floors, huddled under the silver space blankets to try and stay warm. That's because they were in these Yulera facilities. Um, and you know, these images may not be very prominent in our newsreels anymore. They've kind of fallen out of the spotlight, but that's certainly not because this isn't still happening. Um, this is still the process when children cross the border, they're initially placed into CBP custody. Um, from there, uh, they get transferred to the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And per uh, US policy that has to happen, within 72 hours. Sometimes it doesn't, that process may take longer, um, but they are supposed to be transferred out of CBP custody, out of the Hileros within 72 hours. When they're transferred to the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, um, this is an an agency that falls under the Department of Health and Human Services, rather than the Department of Homeland Security. That's a, a common misconception is that people think that ICE under the Department of Homeland Security is detaining these kids, but ICE is actually the entity that detains adults who were unlawfully present here in the US, whereas the Office of Refugee Resettlement, or ORR, is the entity that detains um, children who are not lawfully present in the US. From there, what happens after the child is transferred to ORR custody is that they will remain there until one of a few things happens. Either they will be released to an approved sponsor, and we'll talk later about who is a sponsor, um, or the child will turn 18, at which point they can't stay in ORR custody. They may be granted legal relief if they are in custody for a long time, um, because that's a process that takes a very long time, Um, or they may opt for something called voluntary departure, in which case they would be returned to their country of origin.
1: Let's talk about these ORR facilities. We talked about the CBP facilities, the Yeleras, but let's talk about the ORR facilities. What are those like?
2: Yeah, so I think, um, you know, people probably have an idea of what this looks like based on some of what we've heard in the news about these facilities where children are detained. There's actually sort of a spectrum of the types of facilities where children will be detained in ORR custody. So this, for most children, looks like a shelter setting which may be small, you know, 50 beds or so, up to several thousand beds. Um, Some children are placed into foster care, some children are placed into more restrictive settings or residential treatment centers. And then the last kind of uh, facility that there is, is something that we tend to see in um, seasons of influx, when there are more children coming to the border. Um, which may be a result of sort of seasonal migration patterns or these policies at the border that we've mentioned. Um, These facilities are known as emergency intake sites or influx care facilities. Um, In the news, you may have seen these. uh, these, some of these facilities uh, because many of them are convention centers, old Walmarts. Um, When we talk about tent cities and we see children living in these tent cities, Um, These are all emergency intake sites and influx care facilities. So there's these mass congregate settings um, for children that are really not equipped to care for them. Um, And and certainly, as you can imagine, an, an old rundown, former Walmart is not an appropriate setting for children.
1: What other concerns do you have about, you know, these these facilities, especially the emergency intake sites?
2: Yeah, so in theory, and according to a policy, um, it's the the Flores Settlement, which kind of governs how children are supposed to be treated while they're in custody. Um, All children in ORR custody, regardless of what type of facility they're in, are entitled to receive case management services, clinical services such as therapy, um, educational services, and medical services, and they're supposed to get two phone calls a week. The quality of these services can look vastly different depending on the type of facility where a child is detained. For example, we know that in some of the smaller, more intimate settings, educational services might actually be classroom type settings with licensed teachers, whereas in some of the larger facilities, it may be children in a large auditorium uh, put in front of a YouTube screen. so you know, this can vary greatly depending on the facility. Um, what we also know is that in some of these emergency intake sites and influx care facilities that are used when children are crossing in higher numbers, um, these services are not always provided. So um, you know, we've encountered many, many cases where children weren't even assigned a case manager for weeks upon weeks, um, had no access to therapy, had not been assessed for medical needs, had been granted no phone calls um, or you know any kind of communication with their loved ones outside of the, the facility. Um this is obviously hugely problematic. And we also know that um, you know, there are major concerns in some of these facilities about the way that children are treated. Um uh, there have been many, many news stories that have come out in facilities such as Fort Bliss or Casa Padre or Shiloh or Shenandoah. If you've heard any of these names in the news, it's because there have been major abuse allegations at all of these facilities that children have been abused by staff members at the facilities. Also that children are being forcibly drugged at some of these facilities um, that sort of you know call themselves residential treatment centers and, and claim to be assessing the needs of children. Um, We also know that children in these facilities may or may not have cultural sensitivity uh, given to them, uh, depending on where they're from or what their cultural background is, especially right now as we're seeing so many Afghan children detained in custody since the fall of of Afghanistan. Um, We're seeing children who maybe don't have access to interpreters in their languages, don't have access to... Uh, The tools they need or the opportunities that they need to be able to practice their own religion. um, All of these things are, are majorly problematic.
1: How long does it generally take for a child to be released from ORR custody?
2: So currently the average length of stay is about 30 days. Under the previous administration, the average length of stay reached 120 days at its peak. So obviously there's a a huge difference there. And this can change greatly depending on who's in charge. Um, The longest length of stay that I've ever encountered in the hundreds of children I've worked with in ORR custody was a child from Anbudas who was detained for about seven years in ORR custody before she was ultimately sent back to her country of origin. Um, So this length of stay can vary greatly depending on who the sponsor is of the child, um, what the details are in the case, whether there's an influx, whether the facility is properly staffed um, to to secure the release of the child quickly, um, and whether there are barriers that the sponsor is having a really hard time overcoming. Um, These can all really affect the amount of time the child is detained.
1: I want to turn now to that concept of sponsors. So what is a sponsor and who can sponsor a child?
2: Yeah, so I think first it's probably important to talk about what it means to sponsor a child. So all children who are deemed unaccompanied um, are in removal proceedings. So, you know, I think many people have the understanding that um, once these children have entered the U.S. or once maybe they've been released from one of these facilities, that they've been granted some kind of legal status, and that's actually not the case. Um, They're all in removal proceedings, and they're all going to have to fight a legal case to be able to stay here. And so really, the purpose of a sponsor is someone who's willing to receive this child into their home and care for them during the process of this child fighting their legal case um, and fighting for their right to stay in the US. So anyone who agrees to sponsor a child is really agreeing to care for that child until the child turns 18 or beyond. So these sponsors can be family members or family friends. Um, The vast majority of them are family members. We know, as we said before, about 50% of these children have biological parents in the US who are willing to receive them. About 90% of these kids have a blood relative in the US willing to receive them. Um, and the remaining children generally have a family, a family friend uh, who's willing to apply to be their sponsor. Um, these sponsors, depending on their relationship to the child are broken into different categories. Um, categories one, two, and three, and they all look different based on their relationship to the child. And each one of those categories has different set of requirements um, and different hoops that the sponsor has to jump through uh, in order to have the child released to them. So depending on the relationship of the child, this can be more or less challenging for the sponsor.
1: So if I wanted to sponsor a child and help a child get out of detention, could I do that?
2: This is a question we actually get really frequently, and I think it comes from a really good place. Obviously, people, you know, are are disheartened and distraught to see that children are in custody, and um, the answer is, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how we're looking at this, um, the answer is no. Uh, generally, family friends uh, who are not related to a child have to be able to uh, demonstrate a pre-existing relationship with the child. So strangers are unable to sponsor children. Do sponsors have to have legal status? They don't. Um, And many sponsors think that they do have to have legal status. Um, And if they don't have legal status, they're very fearful of, of coming forward to try and sponsor a child. But actually, the vast majority of sponsors don't have legal status in the U.S., And their immigration status does not matter, is not relevant to the reunification process at all. Um, The only exception to that is if the sponsor is not related to the child and has an order of removal from the United States. But that aside, the immigration status of a sponsor does not matter. Um, This fear that sponsors have uh, if they don't have legal status, I think largely comes from a lot of what we saw under the previous administration, Um, Previously, the Office of Refugee Resettlement cross-shared information with the Department of Homeland Security, and so sometimes undocumented sponsors who would come forward to try and sponsor a child would have their information turned over to ICE and then would be apprehended um, and, and detained and sometimes deported as a result. So... Even though this is no longer the practice, that fear really still lingers among sponsors. And it's really hard to trust that there won't be repercussions if they come forward and don't have legal status.
1: We've talked about a lot today. So if there's one thing that you'd want the public to know about this process, what would that thing be?
2: I'm really bad at just sticking to one thing, so I'll give you a few. Um, It is a wildly complex process. So, you know, we've been able to just barely touch the surface today. Um, what we what we hear about in the news or what is available to people in, in public policy really is just a snapshot of this bigger picture of what, what this situation of unaccompanied minors look like. Um, so the stories that we hear publicly are are generally incomplete. I think it's also really important to note that border policies have a huge impact on the the detention of children. So border policies have the ability to make this situation much better or much worse. And currently we're seeing that border policies are leading to uh, higher detention rates of children. Um, I think lastly, as I mentioned before, um, it's important to understand that reunification of children is not the end of the road for them. This is not, you know, the end all be all victory that a lot of people think it is, uh, because they are still in removal proceedings, and they are still fighting a legal case. And some of them, you know, ultimately won't be given the right to stay here in the US.
1: If there's one thing you could change about this process, and I know we've talked about many, but if there's one thing, what would that be?
2: I think we should stop separating families when we don't need to. Um, There are many, many ways that we could go about keeping families together um, and assessing the relationship of children with their caregivers at the border um, without separating them and detaining children unnecessarily and causing unnecessary trauma to the the entire family. It can be done. There are ways to do it. We've seen it done for certain populations. Um, We could be doing it for all of these families, and we're just choosing not to.
0: Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Inadmissible. We look forward to bringing you more episodes, and we'd love for you to
1: subscribe to our podcast. To learn more about how to get involved with Vecina's work,
2: visit Vecina.org. That's V-E-C-I-N-A dot O-R-G. See you next time.